this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business, supply chain and globalization and the effects these have had on the way we work, play and live over recent decades. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience both for me and for my interviewees from around the world. In today's program, we will be talking to Colin Kyo, who is an innovation technology and engineering consultant, among many other things. Colin is from Brain County Wicklow and continues to live there, which makes me and him pretty much neighbours. So while he is still close to home, he has packed so much into the last 10 years that it's difficult to keep track of what he's up to at any given time. Colin studied mechanical engineering at UCD at undergraduate level and then went on to do his master's there in energy systems, followed by a PhD in engineering, working at the on-campus Smart Lab and Inclusive Design Center. And he worked uh, later at the university as a research and development engineer. And as well as his work as an independent consultant over the last number of years, some of the initiatives that Colin has been involved in uh, include the, the Printastic project, uh, the open source ventilator, uh, Forbes Lister Europe and the Rapid Foundation. And we find out more about some of these from Colin shortly. So welcome, Colin, and thanks very much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. You're very welcome. How are you coping with the lockdown restrictions over the last nine or ten weeks? It's probably fed up like the rest of us. I'm fed up in general. Yeah, of course, been at home and been restricted. Definitely. It's it's kind of I'm longing for freedom again. But from a kind of professional level, it's not really impacted me in a huge way. Like I'm one of those modern digital generation sorts that have been working at home for myself for a long time anyway. So it's business as usual from the kind of business and work front for me. Yeah, it is, it is strange how uh, uneven this has affected people, isn't it? Some people who have been out of work for, I guess, a year and then others who are unaffected and others, you know, I have clients who can keep up with the business, you know? So it's very, very uneven. It's very, very uneven, exactly. And I consider myself as one of them that can't keep up with the business that's out there kind of thing. It's like for the last six or seven years, all I've needed is a, is a laptop to work from and that's it, yeah. you know? So even <laughs> like, I know this is audio and there's no video, but if there were, you'd see I have a pseudo workshop behind me in my home office. So even if I need to produce, I can still produce. But working in this field and this idea with disruptive technologies and new kind of consumer technologies, I can sort of plant an engineering workshop and bring it home, but I know there's an awful lot of people that can't like it's my father been one of them as an automotive mechanic. He needs to be in the garage to do any work. That's right. That's right. It's amazing. So you, you studied mechanical engineering, then energy systems, and then you did the, the, the PhD. So what, what was the topic and the theme of your doctoral thesis? My doctorate in particular was about innovation methods. So I had a kind of convoluted path from it. As I said, started years ago as a pseudo apprentice car mechanic. Mechanical engineering, I focused on vehicle technologies and automotive systems. I moved into energy with hybrid and electric vehicle systems, then looked at biofuels and advancements, and then just started working as a research engineer and a consultant. And through that course, I was exposed to business, startup companies, like legacy legitimate companies that wanted to employ new technologies. So I got that kind of business bug. So then over the course of a couple of years, I'd founded four or five different companies. I probably worked with 20 or 30 more deploying new technologies and starting up new businesses. So when it came to looking at studying it a little bit further, innovation methods and approaches were the way forward. I developed a unique set of innovation methodologies as an engineer. Engineers has a way a way of solving particular problems. And what I wanted to do in my thesis was kind of map that a little bit and see are there any tools or techniques or supports that can be extracted from engineering and applied to this general field or area of innovation methods. So my doctoral research was focused on exactly that finding, reviewing, and assessing any form of innovation method from the STEM fields, the business fields, and the social impact fields, 
trying to put them all together and to propose a better version kind of going forward. So all about how the process of innovation actually works. Okay, and this um, doctoral thesis may give rise to a published work, a commercially published work. I think you're you're looking at that actively, is that right? I'm in the process of it now. Yeah, I'm trying to turn it into a book. It, it, it suits it extremely well and it suits a business book too. In it, I have 300 plus innovation methodologies that I've used every single one of them. So I have then reviewed and assessed them so there is like a compendium of all of the tools and methods and processes you need for innovation going forward. So I'm currently in the process of writing it up into a business book now at the minute, you know, a kind of engineer's view on innovation methodologies and the best ones from a kind of user's perspective. An awful lot of them are very kind of ethereal or conceptual or theoretical, whereas the ones I like are applied. You know, I've applied them in business before. I've applied them with startups before. They need to do something in the immediate short term for me to value them. So they're the ones that I'm going to hopefully put into this book. Hopefully we'll get it written and it'll be released before the end of the year. Excellent. Excellent. Um, any publishers uh, so far? Are you going to self-publish? What way are you going? I have some conversations via yourself, actually, as you know very well, like has <laughs> introduced me to a couple of publishers down the line. So I have a couple of conversations lined up for some publishers in the UK. And yeah, I'm going to have the conversation and see. I have to try and resist the tendency to do it all myself. I'm one of those <laughs> yeah. sorts of individuals that like, I, I don't know anything about it. So it fascinates me. So I'd love the process of learning about publishing a book. So, but time restraints and the reality we're in now, publisher, any publishers want to reach out to me, please do. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for you, do you see a distinction between innovation and problem solving? And, and if you do, what is it for you? Yeah, I do. And I don't at the same time. To me, they're exactly the same thing. One is the same. Uh, innovation is the applied process of problem solving to me. So the innovation action is you actually applying it in reality. Now, that's how I view it. But unfortunately, I think the term, the, the space is full of an awful lot of buzzwords. Innovation is a buzzword. You know, disruptive technology is a buzzword. They're attached to things that aren't innovative in any shape or form. So, you know, it's to me, true innovation is actually applying it into some measurable, visible, impactful way, whether it is launching your company, whether it's reducing your kind of your, your overheads, whether it's increasing your kind of profit, whatever it may be, the process of applying these new ideas, that to me is innovation, like applying it in reality, in the market and it having some measurable sort of increase or impact in the kind of future. So, you know, there's lots of kind of, buzzwords and nonsense in that space, but I'm 100% what I call applied innovation. You know, is it has to be applied to solve a particular problem. And once it does that, then it's considered innovation. If you just find the problem and you think about how to solve it without actually solving it, you're just undertaking a thought exercise. You've mm -hmm. not actually done anything. You've not actually achieved anything. You've not innovated anything apart from having, having maybe an innovative thought or an idea. You have to apply it, in my mind, for it to be considered any form of innovation. And then it's considered an innovation when other people recognize it as innovative or new, and you have to then apply it for them to recognize it. People can't read your mind, so it needs to be applied in practice in some shape or form. Yeah, I had a conversation with another person, and they, they drew a distinction between it in the sense that they said, um, problem solving is, for example, you, you have a situation and for some reason or other, it goes off standard. So a machine stops working or process breaks down. And to get it back on standard, you, you have to find the root cause of the of the problem, remove that root cause, resolve it, and then you, you've solved the problem. So you're back on track. Whereas innovation didn't actually need a problem to have occurred. So you know the way kind of Steve Jobs he kind of created a, a need in people uh, and he came up with this, this uh, iPhone concept 
Um, but it wasn't necessarily a, a problem. Nobody had a problem. He just conceived of this new thing and then everybody wanted it. And that was the kind of distinction uh, that that person drew for me uh, between problem solving and innovation, which is kind of interesting. It's interesting and it's very relevant as well. The one that the, the one that jumps to mind is Henry Ford. You know, Henry Ford's famous saying, if you ask people at the time if they want what they wanted, they tell you faster horses yeah. and not a car. <laughs> You know what I mean? So that is true kind of innovation, huge kind of generational shifts in technology. You know, Henry Ford introduced the consumer mass produced car and in doing so created the production line and created process optimization. And, you know, that was a true innovative step. Whereas, you know, as you said, problem solving, what also the description you just gave to me right there, what it reminds me of is something like Lean or Six Sigma, you know, Six Sigma approaches. You know, you're refining a process that's already there. But the prerequisite is there has to be a process there that can be measured already. What happens if there isn't? What happens if you're creating something completely new? What happens if you're working in a field that has no history in it? What happens if you create that new field, which is happening more with more regularity now than ever before, mostly driven, in my opinion, by digital technologies, mobile phone and connectedness. The, The mobile phone and the internet is driving all of these sorts of technologies forward. And that's where these big innovation steps are coming from. I see. So for your PhD at UCD, you worked under uh, Professor Elizabeth Goodman at SmartLab and uh, the Inclusive Design Centre. So what is SmartLab and what kind of work is being done in there? So that, that was, there's a very interesting story when I came up to that as well, actually. So the SmartLab and Inclusive Design, uh, Professor Goodman set it up a good few years ago in London, and it focuses on technology impact for meaning, cre- using technology to improve the lives of other people. That it's its sole driver. You know, they worked on a huge range of projects, rehabilitation, disability, eye tracking. It's all meaningful innovation. And before I actually took a PhD position with that organization, I had another offer. So I was considering an offer from MIT, you know, and as an engineer, that is a kind of, you know, haloed, hollowed ground PhD in MIT. It was an amazing offer, but it just, it didn't sit right for me for some reason. It just didn't catch my attention. I always wanted to apply what I did into practice in some shape or form. So I distinctly remember the day turning down a PhD in MIT and then a couple of days afterwards having this existential crisis of what have I done? Like I've like as I've turned down a PhD in MIT, what am I insane? But then no, I chose the Smart Lab one and I've not regretted it for a second. So throughout that whole project and that whole period and the whole doctorate, I got to work on some amazing projects in where helping people with disabilities, applying technology to help people in spaces like virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, advanced prosthetics, 3D printing. So I love that motivation and that impact drive. As I said, I want applied innovation. And to me, there's no more complicated problems than problems that everyday people face and they face in their day-to-day life. So that like Smart Lab presented me an opportunity to do all of that and work on some amazing ones. So it was a kind of different path going away from the engineering core and more into the kind of human design and human-centered design process. And it's massively helped me as a professional ever since going that approach. I've uh, I read something recently about application of uh, 3D immersive technology for the treatment of people suffering from PTSD. Have you come across that or heard, heard about that? I have exposure therapy, yeah. Virtual reality exposure therapy. It's super, super interesting. Yeah. And again, a great example of using technology. So one of the things I've said many, many times before is technology is a tool. To me, a 3D printer or a VR headset or an AI algorithm is exactly the same as a screwdriver or a hammer or a saw. It's a tool to do a specific job. But unfortunately, we've got to the stage now where lots of people and lots of industries assume once they buy the fancy technology, that kind of is the innovative bit done. And then it'll do something. You know, they'll be innovative now because they have this fancy tech. 
and mm. you'll go to any multinational, any university, any company around the world, and you'll see a room with technology they bought that's not actually doing anything. I could name some quite major ones in Dublin in particular that have these rooms full of tech that don't do anything because they viewed that as the answer to the question. Whereas the example you've just given me is a perfect example of the VR is the tool and then you're applying it to a human problem being PTSD. So the common ones I like to see are the PTSD and then exposure therapy for phobias. I remember once working on a project in which we worked on arachnophobia, helping people that were deathly terrified of spiders slowly increase their exposure tolerance to spiders. And, you know, if you want a shock, get somebody with arachnophobia <laughs> and I like, put them in a VR room where there's a million spiders being dropped on them. You know, they will go absolutely insane as justifiably so. But you can gradually increase their exposure and you can help them get comfortable with it. Similarly for PTSD you can instill the same feelings and the kind of PTSD anxiety attacks virtually, but in a safe environment. So you can start training somebody to minimize the impact of these external drivers, you know, whether it's cars backfiring for war zones or it's, it can be strange things like silence. I remember, I know some people that had some time in the military and silence can kind of set them off that sort of strange silence before an attack if you're uh, away on operations everything goes dead silent before something dangerous happens so i've met a couple of people that don't like silence at all and it unnerves them so you can work on exposing people with this technology but in a safe way yeah it's fascinating how would you rate the the links how good are the links between industry and academia in in the sphere of engineering innovation and what do you think needs to be done to develop that further here in ireland specifically the links are there i don't think they're exploited as well as they could be now it's not just ireland specific it's kind of genre specific Mm. as in They have different drivers. Academia is theory to the core. As much as they try and move into applied application and industry, an academic's job is to work on theory, create new concepts, create new ideas, create new solutions, where industry's job is to turn these new ideas into profit in some shape or form. So there's a little disconnect between the two of them. Both sides recognize that each other are needed, but they don't really speak the same language and they're not really driven the same way. So, you know what I mean? Really good tech transfer is vital for that sort of stuff. And even kind of informal processes, you know, collaborative hackathons or industry-focused student projects, anything that can kind of increase the communication between industry and academia helps get everyone on kind of common ground so they speak the common language. And then you'll start to see a greater kind of output from university in industry. You know, it's just it's just a lack of communication, like an awful lot of these things. One speaks one language, another speaks another language, and they try and meet somewhere in the middle, which is kind of a compromise that neither side are happy with. So, you know, a good translator in the middle is very, very good. So like there's there's I've met some very, very good translators, people with backgrounds in academia that have then moved into industry and they kind of waver in and out as time Mm -hmm. goes. Like I am one of those sorts of people that do a bit of both at the same time. One month I could be full industry, other month I could be back in academia. It kind of varies. Yeah, interesting. Uh, So in your current consultancy work, what kind of services then are you offering and what kind of clients do you have and how do you think they're better off after having worked with you? So like consultancy in that case is all kind of commercialization and validation sort of stuff. As in, you know, taking ideas from clients and then like refining them into a plan that actually makes sense, a plan that can be presented into something. So you know what I mean? It's I've done that with companies and I've done that for myself as well, working as a private consultant with other people. Just like, you know, taking what is research or theory or even industry-based ideas and grounding them in some form of reality. You know, as I help you build the execution plan or the implementation plan, 
We test it with some customers. We see what customer feedback, see if your idea actually has a market in the industry. And then we kind of do some initial tests with it. Make sure the idea works. Make sure you get your customer feedback and just help do a immediate kind of short term plan where you can integrate, give you an, a, like a North Star project, let's say. You can say, okay, here's a great technology. Here's what your industry does. How about we propose this project going forward? Here's how you'd fund it. Here's how long it would run for. Here's how you would execute it. And here's how you would sell it at the end. And then kick it off and see what it actually delivers. So, you know, bringing that sort of grounding that idea in some sort of executable reality, that sort of thing. And what I found working with that was it, it basically, it, one, it, it familiarizes companies or organizations with that process of innovation. They can see one project through from ideation right through to delivery. And then it kind of normalizes the process. They're like, that's not as half as complicated as we thought. It didn't take half as long as we thought. And it was a lot more productive than what we had imagined in our mind. So one, it, it helps everyone get comfortable with that sort of process. And then two, it helps the company itself get some sort of foothold in the market or in their industry for doing these sorts of innovative projects. Mm -hmm. I'm a big, massive believer of you have to talk about what you're doing. It's common in business in startup mode as well to have a company that's in stealth mode. You know what I mean? It's kind of you operate under the radar and you don't tell anyone what you're doing. So a startup to me, like 99% of companies that operate in stealth mode in the early stage companies just aren't doing anything. You know, very, very few companies actually are doing something that's really impactful. So, you know, tell people what you're doing. Publish your case studies, publish them as reports, talk about them at industry conferences. It helps build your company and your idea and your perception in people's mind of an innovative company. And you're showing that you can execute these projects. And I just kind of act as a supervisor or a support or a mentor or like a guidance for these projects to be executed in reality. I guess I guess they learn then more so how to do it for themselves in the future. They've internalized the innovation process and mindset. Is that right? Exactly. You're just basically showing these companies a way, a, a process of how they can do these projects. And you're working them through an early stage example. And then, yeah, it's building this idea internally in the company and in the individual people that work for the company that mm. this sort of process is viable. It's achievable. And it's not this kind of mystic art of, you know, uh, mystical innovation process. It's just logic. You follow a plan, you set a goal, you measure your progress, and then you evaluate it at the end. You know, it just realizes and normalizes that sort of process going forward. I mean, a little bit about this open source ventilator initiative you got involved in last year. <laughs> I, think it, I think it turned into something other than what you thought it was at the beginning. That project that got carried away. Yeah. So yeah. I'd, I'd submitted my PhD in very early January, 2020, and I'd gone through all of the process, got it corrected, reviewed, did the Viva. It was brilliant. And around March time, I'd kind of finished and I decided I'd take a bit of time off just to kind of relax after a couple of years of a PhD. And around the 15th of March, COVID hit. Ireland was locked down. I even remember where it was. I was teaching in Trinity College the day that they closed all the schools and universities. And it was complicated as in my class was solely made up of PhD students from all around Europe. So every single one of them was panicked to high heaven, worried about, can we actually get home? What's happening? So that was the instigator. But we were all, I was also due to do a workshop with the HSE the couple of days afterwards. And it kept getting pushed out until rightfully so it was cancelled because here was this impending health crisis. So having worked in this space before, having worked in large open source projects online via the, my foundation. So my foundation does developmental work overseas with 3D printers. So I had some history in supporting people in other countries without actually being there, using technology to create solutions. So I'd found a group on Facebook that was looking at building ventilators. I joined that. I asked them, could I promote it in Europe? And they said, yes. 
And in the course of promoting it, a couple of people in Ireland and the HSE being one of them came to me and said, can you have a look and see if this is viable in a more localized level? So I'd set up the open source ventilator project in Ireland. It started between a WhatsApp group with two friends of mine, Connor Laverty and David Pollard, that we've worked on projects before. And then in the space of like a week, we added, I think, 3000 people in a week via a huge Slack channel. There was four websites. There were people from like 140 different countries or something. I, I don't know what it was. I think that's probably more countries than there actually are. But we had coverage of most of the countries in the world. The final number set that about just over 5,000 people. And over the course of a couple of months, all online, all remote. Most of us had never met each other. You know, we'd all work together and all between the power and the kind of ambition and the commitment of these thousands of volunteers, they generated, I think, 17 ventilator concepts, three of them that went on to final stage testing, and then about 30 other open source interventions, face shields, education tools, uh, medical gowns, smocks. It, it, it was it was crazy. We just created this innovative community that allowed and supported people to create interventions to fight COVID. So our three kind of pillar projects were our ventilator arm, which created all of these ventilators. And we were working with Ford in Detroit and Amazon in um, Seattle and the World Health Organization, huge, big like behemoths helping our kind of ragtag online project execute our plans. We had our, our OSVX, which was our all non-ventilator projects. And they created guidance and videos and education and tools and facials, huge amounts of work and shared it all open source. And then our third one was a great group called Bikers Coming Together. And it was a, a biker group in Ireland. They did a biker photography group before COVID started. And what they were doing was they were an ad hoc emergency delivery service. So a great guy started at Merv Colton. He started Bikers Coming Together. And for about six months, I'd say, if you were a nursing home or a care home that needed PPE equipment, you could send a text message to the bikers. They would connect you with people that had the equipment you needed and they deliver it on their bikes. So I think at one stage there was like 400 bikers running all over Ireland, delivering everything from gloves and face shields and gowns to at one stage they picked, somebody donated us a field of flowers. So having 50 bikers in a field, you know, all lettered up picking flowers to give to old <laughs> folks homes. And then they delivered ice cream as well. I think we had a company give us ice cream, delivered ice cream to old folks home, real kind of, needs driven innovation we didn't care what the need was once somebody needed it and we had a solution for it that was applied you know from ventilators to ice cream amazing this idea or this this uh, technology additive manufacture that most people will probably know as 3d printing what's the current state of the art there in terms of materials and and scalability industrial scalability uh, and where do you see it going over the next five to ten years so like to me, there's kind of two avenues. One of them is consumer and one of them is industrial because they both have different kind of growth arcs. Industrial side, everything's focused on metal, you know, metal fiber, metal powder, metal manufacturing. And there's huge amounts of advanced titanium and stainless steel and high-end manufacturing. Like an awful lot of aircraft have 3D printed engine components. They are very, very common now these days. So that is one. Then kind of human integrated polymers is another, you know, human safe plastics. So a company like Invisalign that make the insertable braces, they are the world's largest 3D printer. Every single one of them is 3D printed. So that is a huge growth area. Industry-wise, then they're looking at biology and biological printing. So cells, meat, you know, kind of skin cells, anything biological, that's a huge growth area in industry too. But then from a consumer perspective, and I by consumer, I mean right up to kind of SME level, you know, is lower cost but high performance printing systems. You know, for a couple of hundred to a couple of thousand euros, you can buy desktop 3D printers that can print in every polymer blend you can imagine. 
Some of them print in 3D reg, reinforced carbon fiber elements. You can get some now that do also metal powder, desktop metal powder printing. So, you know, the ability to have a, you know, near industrial capacity for printing can be in your kind of home shed or, you know, an industrial estate or even your home office if need be. So how that integrates into our traditional manufacturing supply chain process, I think is going to present huge amounts of opportunities. You know, mass customization, you know, localized manufacturing processes. If you think about it, if you're making something, it's unless you're going to produce them in millions of quantity. Getting them manufactured in China doesn't make sense ecologically or financially or anything anymore. If you're doing smaller, customized, limited runs, it should be produced semi-locally. It can be, whether it's in your town or your county or your country. You can do that now once we adapt the kind of supply chain around it. Because unfortunately, production as a whole, as you know very well yourself, is driven with traditional supply chain processes. It is slow to change because that's the way all business has been built. But I can see it changing. And I can see, you know, an awful lot more localized production, localized manufacturing, but production of more customized materials, you know, custom fit products, custom designs produced within 50 miles of where you are delivered in, you know, a day or two versus shipped from the other side of the world. And I'm like super interested to see how that impacts our supply chains and our business processes that we've used. It's going to reduce waste on the one hand, and it's going to uh, reduce carbon footprint on the other. So it certainly has to be part of the mix because we have some um, big targets to hit for 2030 and 2050. So I guess this is going to be part of it. Exactly. We have to. Like, you know, climate change is the biggest problem everyone will face and you can't ignore it. So a process like this can help produce and impact climate change. So yeah, we have to embrace it and get on board with it. Tell me, outside of work, what kind of things do you like to do in your hobbies, pastimes? Just work. like that. Um, <laughs> no, I'm one of those lucky people that love the stuff that I do anyway. So when I'm like pastimes, I love like advising companies as well. So I love running startup weekends and online hackathons. Like even now COVID, it's made very little difference because they've gone online. So I think the course of this year, you know, we had one in uh, Lusaka in Zambia. We had one in Harare in Zimbabwe. We ran one in a, a couple in Ireland, a couple with some universities. We're doing one in, we did one in China. So, you know, I love encouraging other people with their ideas and giving them support and basically just saying, look, I, I've started some of these companies like the ventilator project on a whim, a, a, a WhatsApp message and a crazy idea. So I like encouraging people in that sort of space. And then, you know, apart from that, like, yeah, lockdown times now, a walk or two walks a day, maybe. You know what I mean? I forgot what it's like to kind of have leisure time. So hopefully yeah. that comes back in the immediate future. So Bray, Bray Seafront twice a day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right outside the door. And there's not, yeah, not much you can do, but yeah. yeah. Have you read anything lately that inspired you that you would recommend to listeners? Like I'm one of those. Funnily enough, I'm not a big reader and I'm not a big reader because I had significant problems reading when I was a kid. Mm. So, you know what I mean? Well, I had, I had years of remedial education when I started in school, just because I never liked the process of reading. I found it horrendously difficult to do. My poor mother broke her back trying to teach me how to read when I was younger. So I never picked up the bug. I'd love to do it, but I've never kind of picked up it. But I'm a full digital person now. So it's podcasts and YouTube videos and everything. So that's how I kind of consume content. So like the stuff that I'm super interested in now at the minute, I'm on a big kind of biomimicry kick. So anything on biomimicry, copying nature, natural designs in machines and processes in industries, that's kind of what I'm on a big kick now at the minute. And mainly to do with like natural selection systems. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very interested now in seeing, can we, can I mimic that? You know, can, is there a way to mimic how nature naturally selects the best outcome? Is there a way to mimic that if you're trying to 
select innovative ideas or select company ideas or select business industries. I'm super interested in it. I'm in the process of trying to map that over. Now, it's not going very well because I'm not a very good biologist, but I'm at least trying. You'll probably do a degree in biology at some point and then you will be a biologist. Oh, it's not like <laughs> I have a problem with the science. I'm an applied sciences person. Now, uh, so where can people find out more about you and your your work and your thinking and, and so on? Uh, it's mainly like I've, I've got a couple of videos on YouTube. You can find them on there. My consultancy company is called Sapien Innovation. It's S-A-P-I-E-N Innovation. And that's online there. And then like LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm a big Twitter head. So if you search my name, you'll Colin Kyo, you'll find lots of ways to contact me there. So bring me your problems is what I like. The harder the problems, the better. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Colin, it's been uh, been an absolute pleasure talking to you today and wish you all the very best, both professionally and uh, personally. So many thanks for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks also to all of our listeners. And remember that if you would like to know more about how I can help you to formulate and implement international business strategies that deliver, check out my blog on albalogistics.com or pick up my book, International Supply Chain Relationships on Amazon, Google Books or Apple Books. Thank you for listening and keep well until next time.